Teamwork is the ability to work together toward a common vision, the ability to direct individual success accomplishments toward organizational objectives. It is the fuel that lets common men attain uncommon results. Those are the words of Andrew Carnegie, and for those of you who know history, he is not a very common man. And one of the most successful men in modern history. Though Carnegie himself was very much larger than life, we identify with his words regarding teamwork because we know it's true. We have seen it in action many times in the past few years. As all of us, we individuals with different talents and different goals in life, different aspirations, different circumstances, we have come together many times under the unifying banner of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen this theory in practice as we as a congregation came together to make many great dreams and visions come true. And all of those resulted in much growth and good, not just within ourselves and, and within the four walls of this church building, but to others in our community and really even recently to people in our surrounding states and other regions across the country. We continue to this day as we come together unified toward the common goal of serving God, serving each other, and serving those in our community. Much like ourselves were the men and women of the church in Thessalonica. Everyday men and women doing their best to emulate Christ and to exemplify him in their community so that they may impact them and influence them to him. And though the first letter to the Thessalonians contains many, many grand images and topics like enduring afflictions, the return of Jesus, the dead in Christ rising up again, and those found in faith being caught up into the sky to be united with everyone. It's not the first thing that you see in the letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians. No, in fact, the first thing that you read of, or that we read of, is Paul not sparing his encouraging commendation to the Thessalonians for the good work, the faith, and love that they have shown. In fact, the, the underlying theme of this letter is this beautiful relationship between Paul and his companions shared with the Thessalonians. As we know from our reading of Acts chapter 17, the church in Thessalonica was most likely founded when Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, converting some of the Jews as they reasoned from the scripture in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, and then a lot of devout Greeks and some leading women. The church was apparently met with some afflictions, as we see Paul mentioning him sending Timothy to check on them in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. However, the church in Thessalonica instead impressed the preachers who helped them establish the foundations by their perseverance. The good news of their faith and love was comfort to Paul and his companions as they have worked hard to minister to them. Their bond seemed inseparable and their love for each other is immensely encouraging. So it was 
that as great as those preachers were, I mean, we're talking about Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ and his companions, but as great as those preachers were, the real power of their relationship came from the enduring work and perseverance of the men and women of the church in Thessalonica. We identify with them because we ourselves are ordinary men and women who are doing our best to emulate Christ and bring those in our community to him. What then were those qualities? What were those characteristics of this church that allowed them to enjoy so much spiritual success that even impressed someone like the Apostle Paul and his companions, Sylvanus and Timothy? Let us examine together this morning as Neil and Hiram walk us through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, a word of praise for the people of God. Brian Zimmerman was 11 years old, 1983, when he was elected mayor of Crab, Texas. He went unopposed. And he ran on a platform, and that platform was to try to keep Crab from being annexed by huge neighboring cities like Houston. But while he was in office, in those two years, he was able to get one of the few roads in Crab paved. He also was able to attend a mayoral conference in Paris, France, and the Europeans referred to him as John Kennedy II. There was a man named Willie Johnson Willie Johnson fought for the Union Army, and he received the nation's highest commendation militarily, the Medal of Honor. He also was 11. Louis Pasteur was still very much a teenager when he perfected that, I should say Louis Braille, when he perfected that Braille system for the blind. Christopher Paolini hit the New York Times bestseller list at the age of 14. And then a woman by the name, or a girl by the name of Marjorie Gestring, won an Olympic gold medal in swimming at the advanced age of 13. Now it's incredible for us to think about the achievements that these children made at such a young age, but except for Pagalene, that was the greatest achievement of their lives. Now think about what was just mentioned from Acts chapter 17. The church is established there. By the work that Paul and Silas and Timothy did together. And as Paul writes to them in what we believe to be the earliest letter that he writes, it's part thank you note, but it's also part encouragement for them to grow and to move forward and to expand in their service to God. It's a difficult time in Paul's ministry. He has to leave Thessalonica very quickly after that third Sabbath. And it's in a series of abuses like this that the Apostle Paul finds himself, we believe, very dejected when finally Silas and Timothy catch up with them in Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and verse 5. And think about Corinth. It's the sin city. It's the Las Vegas of his day. And as he is contemplating the difficulties that he has encountered, first at Philippi, now at Thessalonica, then at Berea, on to the Athens expedition, and now in Corinth. Here they come, 
And whatever it is that they say to him must have been very favorable and positive. There's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4 through 10, as it must have lifted his spirits and changed his attitude. Acts 18 and verse 5 says that it's when they get there that he begins to completely devote himself to the preaching of the Word of God. They had a great start. In a spiritual sense, they were infants, they were very young, and he wants their best days to be ahead of them. And so he writes them in this letter that we're talking about, and we're only going to look at the first chapter this morning. And in fact, I'm only going to look at a few of those verses. For the Apostle Paul says that he thanks God when he remembers them, always remembering them in his prayer. Constantly bearing in mind their work of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance of hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and of the, uh, the, our Father. And then he speaks about that particular work they did say, knowing, beloved, brethren, beloved of God, those who are chosen by Him. You know that I, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. And you became imitators of us and of God enduring much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. There's more to be seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But I want you to see the praise that these missionaries heap on the church. It was praise that was due to them. It was praise to encourage them to move up higher in their spiritual walk. I want to look at with you very briefly three of those reasons for gratitude and praise that Paul shares First of all, the Apostle Paul says, we praise you for your work. Now if you'll notice there, right after he says, I pray for you, he tells them why. He says, I pray for you always bearing in mind three things. There's faith, there's love, and there's hope. This faith is an idea of a conviction. It's confidence with reason for the confidence. This word love, this is a deliberation. This is a choice that comes in appreciation and care for something or someone. And this hope, this is an anticipation of something that we fully expect to obtain. You know, we often see those three qualities together in the New Testament, don't we? And now abides faith, hope, love, these three. The most famous of these is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in verse 13. We often read it at weddings, and that's a a, a great application, but this in context is about the individual Christian's relationship with God. The Apostle Paul says these are qualities, these are Christian graces that are very obvious when we look at you. Now before we talk about what those things did, I want to suggest to you that your faith, your faith, your love, and your hope was so greatly demonstrated. You know, we're still receiving calls and we're getting texts and we're getting emails and I suppose that there are cards that are coming in that are talking about the great work that this church did in the activity that was just concluded. But the question is, what drove that? What drives the faith, the the love and the hope? Well, the Apostle Paul says that there are fruits that come from these qualities. He says, first of all, there's your work of faith. And this word work that we see here is a particular word. This is a word that talks about accomplishing tasks, but it's more than about accomplishing the task. It's about the reason why or how it's done. It's done with energy and it's done with effort. 
You know, when you look at the task that had to be done in what we have just observed, in the, the equipped workshop that has just completed, we can see the task that had to be done, but we also see the attitude with which it was done. But perhaps we lose sight of what works there are to come. And how God wants us to approach those works in the same way. There's been a challenge that our elders have laid before us. And yes, the plates have already been passed. But that giving, that special contribution today, the Apostle Paul would call a work. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, when he refers to this gracious giving, what he's talking about is that this is a work that's to be done. It is a task to be done with energy and with effort. But then there's the labor of love. That word labor, there's a more intense word. It's the idea of becoming weary as the result of being beaten. You know, it might describe how those men felt that were uh, babysitting during the ladies' sessions, during the, the workshop. It was a labor of love, no doubt. It's physically exhausting tasks. And then there is this idea of this endurance of hope. This is bearing up with whatever's difficult, no matter how difficult it might be. These are things that others may observe, but something that God always sees. And so the faith, the love, and the hope drove the work and the labor and the perseverance and the endurance. You know, something that I always say behind your back is that Lehman is a working church. It's an active church. And I say that because of what's inside of you. And it's inevitable that whatever is inside of us is what is going to come out of us. You know, Jesus says that's true if it's negative. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19 and 20, he says everything from evil thoughts to foolishness and all that's in between. He says those things come out because that's what's in you. And the Apostle Paul says that the other side of that is also true. When there's faith and there is love and there's hope inside of you, it's going to come out. And one of the ways it comes out is through work. When I think about the challenges that lie ahead for us as we're striving to take the gospel to Warren County, there is no challenge without God's help that we cannot accomplish because of a deeper condition that exists in this church. You've shown symptoms of it later, but the condition is a work ethic. And you're to be praised because of that. We want to praise you because of your work. You see, all the talking in the world, and there's a whole lot of talk that goes on, is no substitute for work. But second, you're to be praised because of your receptivity. What is the springboard and what is the cause of their work? It is their attitude, their feeling when it comes to the gospel. See, the Apostle Paul lays out for them this idea that they had received the word. And as a result of this, they were those who were able to bear much fruit. When I think about what the Apostle Paul says in in verse 4 and verse 5, on down into verse 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that their gospel came not in word only. I did a search of this and varying experts say various things. But did you know that they say on the internet that there are a total of 30 trillion words on a hundred billion web pages. If the gospel was only another bunch of words, then there would be no need for it. The Apostle Paul says, you sprang into action because you realize that these are no ordinary words. You received this, what we taught you on the second missionary journey, because it was so much more. You realize that it didn't come in word only, but it came in power. What's the difference between what the Bible says and everything else? 
How about what Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. But he says it's also in the Holy Spirit. You see, only this book is authored by God. And so Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 that no prophecy of old is a matter of one's own interpretation or came by an act of human will, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And he says it's also a message of full conviction. When you read Acts 17 and 18 and the cost for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Jason and the others in the congregation at Thessalonica that had just formed They were able to complete their task as Christians because they received the word. They had the conviction that they saw as it was preached and taught to them. You know, when we talk about the great qualities of this congregation, we cannot lose sight of the fact that another one of those is your receptivity of the word. You receive the word with joy. You know, when we talk about all the folks that passed through our doors this past week, a lot of those folks were Lehman Avenue members. And the reason why you came and you attended was because you hungered for the Word of God. You desired that. You know, it's not just in one event. It is a tendency that continues to show itself. It's a tendency that shows itself when people show up on a Monday night at 7 o'clock to attend into the Word. It's a tendency that 38 ladies showed last month when they crammed into a house for ladies' Bible class. It's a tendency that you see when 20 teenagers on a Monday night go into the teen version of Into the Word to open up the Bible and to study it. It is demonstrated every time you come with an open heart and with an open Bible, what you're saying is you realize that this is the Word that's going to judge us in the last day. You have an appetite for the Word of God because you realize what it is. And it's more to be desired than gold, than fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. You're to be praised because you realize the importance of this Word and you act as such. You know how we said all the talking in the world is no substitute for doing? But the other side of that is also true. All the doing in the world is no good if it's not guided and directed by what God's Word says. And so you put those two together. You receive the Word because you realize its source. And you hunger for it and that's what you want. And no substitute or anything else. And so the third reason for praise that I want us to look at is you're to be praised for your example. The Apostle Paul gives us a very simple formula for how to be the right kind of an example. First of all, you've got to imitate the right kind of people. Paul says, you imitated us. But then second, you're to imitate the Lord. And Paul says in these verses that those two things are equivalent. You follow, Paul would say twice in the Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he says, What I want you to do is I want you to receive the word with affliction. And if you can do that, you're going to be an example. And as a result of this, what we find is is the Apostle Paul would say that their example had gone out to all those in Macedonia and in the region of Achaia. That's hundreds of miles in circumference at a time when there was not modern transportation and there was not media technology. Word got out about them. You know, perhaps you think, Neil, you're running quite a risk with so much flattery. Well, it's not flattery. It's praise that's due. But you need to understand this. 
Your faith that you are demonstrating is something that your fellow brothers and sisters are seeing, but it's more than that. It is a faith that brethren in this area and in further places are understanding about this church. They're saying extraordinary things about you, but it's also an example that's being seen more and more in our community. But what's the point of that? What that is, is that spiritual capital that we are accumulating and God wants us to spend for greater service. It's a reminder to us that we are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, Matthew 5 and verse 16. And so as we have a greater example among those who are near and far, God wants us to use that to serve Him and to help His church to grow. No, it wasn't a perfect record at Thyatira, but the Apostle Paul, or rather John would say in, in Revelation 2 and verse 19, he says, I know your works and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your latter works are better than at first. See, that's the point of everything that we're striving to do in obedience to the will of God. It's for us to have opportunities for greater service. Derek talked this morning about stewardship. And, and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, when we faithfully handle what God puts into our hands, He entrusts us with more. When we think about what we're striving to do to the glory of God, we want more to do. And that starts with what you've done. By taking what we've seen in you and your work and your receptivity of the Word of God and the example that you are showing. But there's more, even in this chapter. to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country, Proverbs 25, 25. And when Paul received the good news about the faith of the Thessalonians, as it's been reported to him by Timothy, no doubt his soul was refreshed. Rather than writing them a letter to reprimand them, 1 Thessalonians, especially in chapter 1, as we've already seen, is a letter about rejoicing, about the good news for this church and the work that they had done. Like proud parents bear that badge on the back of their car. My kid made the honor roll. Paul, Silas, and Timothy couldn't be more satisfied with this congregation and the great work that they were doing in response to the preaching and teaching that had been done. When you read 1 Thessalonians, it's really not about the messengers that took the gospel. It's about the message that once received, accepted, and embraced changed the lives of the Thessalonians. It's a book filled with praise and with prayer. Praise for all the good that's been done and prayer that those very things would continue, that they wouldn't lose heart and that they wouldn't give up. When you look at First Thessalonians chapter one in the bottom half of the chapter, verses eight through ten, that's exactly what you see. This praise being lavished on these Christians for the way that they behave. Let me ask you a question. When you go to airports and hotels and restaurants and they send you that email back after you've received their services, that customer satisfaction email, how good and consistent are you at filling that out? We might quickly go through the ones that are already pre-labeled with that scale from one to ten. But how many of us take the time to write in specific comments for what we've received and for the work that's been done? When we go places and they blow it, we want to see a manager. But when they knock it out of the park, we manage to remain silent. We struggle with complimenting people specifically for the good that they do or that they've done. But Paul, Silas and Timothy spare no words of praise in this chapter. 
few years ago in Florida, I was talking with Tom Holland. He had preached a long time, and he told me about one occasion when he was preaching for a congregation while he was in school. He was helping them, and they were helping him. And one day, one man called him as he was going out the side door, and he said, Tom, I've just got to ask you a question. Tom said, what's that? He said, do we ever do anything right around here? He wasn't being sarcastic. It wasn't a rhetorical question. His point was this. We need those things pointed out in our lives when we miss the mark. We need to be corrected. But we also need to be praised when we hit it. And that's exactly what Paul does for us. If you have your Bible, look at First Thessalonians chapter one and verse seven. Paul says you became imitators or examples to all those in Macedonia and in Achaia. Verse eight. For from you sounded forth the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia. But also in every place, your faith to God is spread everywhere so that we don't have to say anything for they themselves report concerning us. What type of receptivity we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Three more things before we extend the invitation that we find in this letter that the Thessalonians were worthy to be praised concerning number one. Paul says they were to be praised for their faith. In verse 8, he says, for from you sounded forth the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia. And this word for sounded forth, it appears only here in the New Testament. And it's a word that means to rumble forth like thunder rumbles across the skies. Their faith was being spread everywhere. He says in Macedonia and in Achaia, everybody has heard about the faith of these individuals. It's like Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 and 15, that the word is an aroma that goes about and spreads into the nostrils of those that need to receive it. That's exactly what you find among the Thessalonians. If it is true that actions speak louder than words, then their actions set a mouthful. James says, some may say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith divorced from works is dead. James 2, 17 through 20. And the Thessalonians didn't just talk a good game. As Neil mentioned, they actually did the work. And this morning we look out on the faces of a congregation who's done the very same thing. You know, I'm not sure of all the specifics of Tim Tebow's faith, but one thing is for certain, anybody who's ever heard his name or ever seen anything in relation to him knows about his unashamed affiliation with Jesus Christ. Whether it's his press conferences where he just speaks with his faith infused language or his kneeling and praying celebration after he scored a touchdown or his godly persona, whatever the case may be, people know about his faith. It just spreads everywhere and what he professes to believe. And so it was with the Thessalonians. Their faith went everywhere. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about the possessor of the faith, but the object of the faith. And that's Jesus Christ. And so Acts chapter four and verse 13, it said about Peter and John that they had been with Jesus and that was known and it was seen because of the faith they had. Notice verse eight. Paul uses two words interchangeably. First, he says the word of the Lord sounded forth. And then he says your faith is spread everywhere. Why would he do that? Because Paul's making this point. Their faith was based on the word of the Lord. And you can't divorce those two ideas. They were inseparably linked together. And he's praising them for the faith that they possess. They're to be noted for possessing this faith and being courageous in their convictions about who Jesus is. And so should we. Imagine the surprise on the face of Paul, Silas and Timothy as they go to these various congregations, 
ready and willing to express the fact that the Thessalonians had left idolatry behind and become Christians only to gladly have their bubbles burst because every time they come to a congregation and they start in telling about these individuals conversion, the text says people already knew. We heard about them already. We already know. The end of verse 8 says we don't have to say anything. They can't even share the good news because the faith of the Thessalonians had done the talking. It's like those four friends that bring that man into the house in Capernaum with Jesus in Mark chapter two and verse five. It says when Jesus had saw their faith, they didn't say anything. But if you carry man as far as they did and rip up a roof and let him down, people sort of get the idea that you have faith. And so it needs to be with us. The Thessalonians started well, but they needed to end well. And let this be a word of encouragement to us that, you know, special events and evangelistic campaigns and carefully crafted seminars, while helpful. In fact, there wouldn't be a church at Thessalonica if that wasn't the case. In the end, what really makes the difference is ordinary people living extraordinary lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with them. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what really makes the difference. I haven't seen it in Kentucky yet, but maybe I'm sure it exists. You've ever seen people with those big sandwich signs and the bullhorns on the side of the street? Repent. The end of the world's coming. You need to respond to Jesus. In February, we were in Daytona and there was a man walking on the beach doing that very thing. He was just reciting from memory all of these passages about judgment and about the need to repent and about the fact that people need to respond to Jesus. And his efforts are no doubt to be applauded. But according to Paul in verse eight, there's something louder and more effective than even that. And it's the daily life of a disciple who gets up every 24 hours with one thought in mind, and that is to please, honor and glorify God. And whenever that happens, individuals are to be praised for their faith. But here's number two. In verse nine, Paul says they're to be praised for their service. He says, from you sounded forth the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, every place your faith to God spreads everywhere. We don't have to say anything. They themselves report concerning us what type of receptivity we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. The second thing that Thessalonians did, starting in verse eight, is they turned to God and they served. It wasn't just what they gave up and what they now believe, but it's the fact that they actually serve God. This word here for service, it deals with allegiance toward another, total dedication toward somebody else. It's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. It's been said that everybody in the world gets to pick which master they serve, but nobody in the world gets to choose no master at all. We all serve someone or something. And Paul says the Thessalonians are serving God. It's hard to miss in verse nine, Paul's play on words. You can almost see him winking through his pen as he says, you've turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. They left dead and false gods to serve the living and the true God. And whenever you live for the living God, you always live differently. Paul says we are the temple of the living God. Second Corinthians six and verse 16. And that should change the way we live. And that's what they had done. They served. They actually got busy. Churches like Lehman Avenue are to be praised for their faithful service to God, surrendering our lives in service to him and doing what it is that God would have us to do. It's what Jesus says in John 12 and verse 26. If any man would follow me, let him serve me. Any man serves me where I am, my servant will be also. And if any man serves me, him will my father honor. God wants us to be known and praised for our service. But that means we actually have to get out and serve, living our lives not for ourselves, but ultimately for him. And that's what you find the Thessalonians doing. 
They had left their false idols behind when the gospel came in and given their lives over to Jesus Christ in service and activity and in busyness for God. You know, when we see this in other individuals, it's our responsibility to say something. Heaven saw what the Thessalonians were doing, but it made all the difference in the world when other humans said, I see your work, I see your faithfulness, and it is making a difference. It's what's said about Asa in 2 Chronicles 15 and verse 7. Don't get tired of doing the work. What you're doing is not in vain. Your work's effective. Don't grow weary in well-doing, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 13. We need to hear those words ourselves, and we need to say it to other people. The Thessalonians are known for their service toward God, like a faithful waiter or waitress clears the table so that they can welcome in the next group of guests and serve them with the same enthusiasm and vigor as they had done formerly. So wise Christians, in reason, clear our minds of the triumphs and success of former service so that every day we can prepare ourselves to serve God in the new day with the same rigor and the same faithfulness so that we can hear well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, 21. But we'll only hear those words if we continue to faithfully serve. And so Paul uses a present tense verb here to say this faith hasn't just begun to work, but it just keeps on working. It's what you do. It's who you are. They clocked in for service toward Jesus Christ and they didn't prepare to clock out until Jesus returned. We sometimes sing a song. We'll work till Jesus what? Until he comes. And that's what they're doing. Paul says you're to be praised for your service. Now, here's the third and final thing. It's in verse 10. They're to be praised for their waiting and their expectation. He says, you're waiting for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians were working. They were working. Verse eight says their faith made a loud sound that went throughout the the world. But they were waiting for a louder sound than that one. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse 16 says that sound will come when there's a cry of command. The trumpet of God and Michael, the archangel, leads the angels with Jesus Christ to come back and rescue the redeemed. They were waiting and expecting Jesus's return throughout the New Testament. The watchword in the first century church was Maranatha. That is an Aramaic phrase meaning Lord come. It didn't mean that first century Christians thought Jesus was coming right away, but they did believe that Jesus could come in their lifetimes. And so they were prepared. They were waiting. They were watching. They were expecting. They wanted him to return. Think about all of the passages in the New Testament that allude to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 23 says we who've received the spirit wait with eagerness like adopted children so that we might receive him at his coming. First Corinthians one and verse seven says we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says that when he comes, he'll change our lowly body so that it'll be fashioned like his glorious body. The last page of the New Testament, Revelation 22, three different times. Jesus says, I'm coming. Revelation 22 and verse seven. I'm going to reward you based on your works when I come. Revelation 22, 12. And then in Revelation 22 and verse 20, John just invites him and says, even so, Lord, come. They were waiting and anticipating. I hope in those verses you don't just hear a statement of fact. Jesus is coming again. But the Christians wanting Jesus to return because they knew. That when Jesus comes back, it's not going to ruin or crush our plans and dreams. But the return of Jesus, if I'm a faithful Christian, is the moment when all of my dreams really will come true. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, seeing that all these things will be dissolved, what type of people ought you to be in all holiness and godly conduct? Knowing that one day the elements and the fervent heat will burn and everything will be dissolved. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. We expect it. We wait for it. And for that, they're to be praised. And so are you. Have you ever been to a waiting room 
maybe at a doctor's office or at a dentist, you wait in this room, you fill the paperwork out, you're sitting in the room, you're waiting. You're waiting in the room with other people. Everybody's in that room, but everybody won't hear the same thing. People are there for various reasons. They've got light TV on, magazines and soft music. They're doing everything that they can to get your mind, get our minds off of what may happen when the doctor opens the door. You may hear good news. You may hear terrible news. But the last thing they want you to do is to fret and worry. They want to distract your mind away from the reality of what's to come. Everybody in the world, this world is our waiting room. But if you're a Christian, you don't wait with frantic and with fear. You wait in faithfulness. You don't want to be distracted, but instead dedicated toward the things that God would have us to be engaged in, the things that God would have us to do. In fact, we stare eagerly at the door of his return, waiting for him to open the door and believing that one day soon he will. Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter five and verse nine, God has not appointed Christians to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus, our Lord. What that means is this. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming to smash us, but to save us. And we wait eagerly for that day. You see, First Thessalonians teaches us this. We're not saved to sit. We're not saved to strut. We've been saved to serve. That's exactly what you find these Christians doing as they await the return of Jesus Christ. Not stagnant in their faith, but vibrant and serving the Lord who redeemed them. They're waiting for Jesus who's been raised from the dead to come so that one day we might be raised and experience the very same things. I don't know what the love language was for the Christians in Thessalonica, but I know Paul, Silas and Timothy gave them a double dose of words of affirmation. They encouraged them and it was the right thing to do because they deserved it. The gospel had gone there. They had received the word and their lives had been changed. And in their little community and around the world, the gospel was being spread that these individuals who once served idols now serve the living and the true God. They live the same places where they've always lived, but someone new was living in them. They worked the same jobs they, they had always worked, but they worked with a new vigor. They spoke the same dialect that had been spoken around their region, but now it was seasoned with heavenly salt. And while so much was the same, so much was also different. And you know where that starts. This word of praise begins with a word of proclamation. It's where David began in Acts 17. The gospel went there first and individuals heard it and they responded. And that's what changed their lives. And it's what will change ours. Maybe this morning there's somebody here who hasn't done that, hasn't obeyed the gospel, turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. We extend heaven's invitation so that you might turn from those things that will ruin and wreck our lives to the one who ultimately will save us. The Bible says that the Thessalonians faith made a large noise. But more than that, the Bible says when people become Christians, heaven is noisy as well. There's rejoicing in the presence of God over one sinner that repents than over 99 just people who don't need repentance. And we'd be happy to assist you this morning in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ if you need to do that. If we can pray with you or pray for you, we'd be happy to do that as well. We're going to be led in a song of encouragement. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.